In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you have to say to us today. Give us the strength and the courage to kind of set aside our cares and woes, uh, and just listen to Scripture, listen to what comes out of these lectures, not so much what is said, but the meaning behind it, and how it affects us as individuals. How can we each benefit uh, from what is said here? So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. The lectures are the scripture that we're going to be covering today. I have a hunch that when you read it, you said, well, here we go again. We got the same old subjects. Uh, and why the repetition? Am I correct? Okay. Uh, you have to remember, as we mentioned right up in front of the first or second lesson, that Isaiah served a period of four different kings of Judah covering a period of approximately 80 years. Now, that doesn't mean that he was busy preaching and teaching for 80 years. Uh, but the time period of those four kings was 80 years. Isaiah was only called upon at various times when God felt it was necessary to repeat the message. And so we because we've heard much of the same thing several times in these chapters so far, we must remember that they cover a different audience each time at a different time and probably different cultures and different uh, locations. And though Isaiah was primarily located in southern the southern kingdom of Judah, as we often said in the beginning, that whenever the prophets spoke, whatever they said really covered both kingdoms, because God would not say one thing to one of the kingdoms and something else uh, to one of the others. And therefore, we've got to understand that whatever message was given by one of the uh, prophets was always meant for the entire region of both kingdoms. God was not concerned with the idea or the separation of the two kingdoms. In fact, uh, when that happened way back in the ninth century B.C., uh, God was very displeased because he worked with David King David, who united all of the little kingdoms made up of the 12 tribes uh, into one. And it was his grandson, Rehoboam, who just didn't want to bother with all of that, so he split it back into two. And there it remained all the way 
uh, until the Assyrians overruled and conquered and virtually destroyed the northern kingdom in the latter part of the 8th century, and the Babylonians conquered uh, Judah in the uh, early part of the 6th century. So we have these different time periods, uh, and therefore that is one of the basic reasons for the repetition. Okay. So I want to go through that, and then I want to talk about uh, some other things that took place during this time period. I hope that uh, you still have your handout from the first class because it's important that we kind of look at this time period. And this is the reference that we're going to be talking about in a little while. All right, this handout here. So I hope you have it. Uh, there are some copies up here if you don't. Okay. In the folder up here, in the back of that folder. All right, okay. All right, we all settled down now? Okay. Let's go to page 86 in your booklet here with the beginning of chapter 32. Now, this is entitled The Kingdom of Justice. Remember, Judaism was in a primitive state at this time period. Scripture was not readily available to these people. And therefore, you cannot hold them to the same degree of responsibility uh, that you would today. Because they didn't have the structure, they didn't have the tools uh, to refer to. They had to kind of go by their tribal customs and the Ten Commandments, and that's about all they had. There was no structure, uh, and to some degree, Judaism doesn't have a structure. It has a belief system, but it has very little structure, and therefore, uh, it is not the easiest language, uh, the easiest religion for other people to understand. But I want to get into that a little later. Okay. Chapter 32. See, a king will reign justly, and princes will rule rightly. Each of them will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the rain. 
They will be like streams of water in dry country, like the shade of a great rock in parched land. What he's doing here is referring back to the time of King David. David ruled in this way because David was a very just person, and so was Solomon, at least in the beginning. And they consulted God regularly in how to do things. In fact, one of the great prayers that came out of, um, well, it's actually in the book of Psalms, but it is attributed to Solomon, is his prayer for wisdom. I don't remember which, uh, which psalm it is, but nevertheless, it is a psalm uh, requesting wisdom because Solomon inherited uh, the kingdom, this was the United Kingdom now, at a very early age. And it had grown into a mighty power under King David, his father. And therefore he prays to God for wisdom in order to rule uh, such a large kingdom. And God gives him that wisdom. The wisdom is really uh, a reference to the moral law that we are all born with, okay? knowing right from wrong. And that is what God is holding these people to at the time of Isaiah. Not all the 10, uh, 613 laws that Judaism is known for today, because that didn't exist at that time, at least in any easily accessible form. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy was being written, or was written shortly before the time of Isaiah, but it didn't really get into circulation until much, much later. In fact, it was pretty much resented and shunned when it was first presented by the Deuteronomists who came out of the northern kingdom. Okay. Again, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But this idea is, uh, in chapter 32, of a new kingdom of justice um, is something that is being held out to the people at this time as uh, hope. Right. This is a whole idea or gift of hope. It never really materialized to the same degree or to the degree that is uh, foretold here. Because the people, as I said, shun the book of Deuteronomy and the responsibilities that God was holding them to. And that, of course, is what led them eventually into the Babylonian captivity. Okay. Now, when we get into... Uh, the next phase, or part two of Isaiah, which won't begin until January, you'll see an entirely different attitude. And it's actually, part two is actually more interesting in a way, and it's something that we can identify with a little easier. Uh, but you had to know the background, and this part, part one, of Isaiah, the first, is really the background that leads to part two. Okay.
Uh, let me go to the bottom. Excuse me, I'm uh, a little bit upset here because of the news of Father. Uh, but let's hopefully we can get through that. says, to put a positive spin on this vision of Jerusalem's future, the prophet speaks about leadership. He assures his readers that there will come a time when the current perverse social and economic order will be set aright. Those who have the responsibility of maintaining a just social order will fulfill their responsibilities. Well, that never quite came about. For the next 130 years or so, until the time of the Babylonian exile, uh, things only got worse, both in the north and the south. The north, of course, was overrun and conquered uh, by the Assyrians in 722. And then uh, somebody asked me this morning already, well, what's this? We were reading about the Assyrians uh, attacking Jerusalem. Well, they tried. Okay. They tried, but they never quite made it. All right. Uh, God uh, intervened in a very unusual way and turned them away. Okay. You will read a lot of that uh, in your home reading assignment for next week. At the, to- at the top of, or the middle of page 87 here, and we're still talking about this uh, holding out for a kingdom of justice. It says, the poor deserve to have justice done when they are in the right. And apparently there is no one to take their side, but it is not only the poor that suffer. Society itself is transformed into something it should not be. The prophet looks for the day when competent and just political leadership will guide the community. But note, there is no hint that this political leadership will come from the Davidic dynasty, that is, the followers or the ancestors of King David, and it never did. Now, judgment on Jerusalem. Uh, woe to the women. Okay. Remember, women in this culture were always kept in the background. All right? Uh, and that was true throughout all the centuries of, Ju- of Judaism and to some degree still is in the strip Orthodox synagogues, the men and the women still sit separately. You still have that kind of um, caste system, you might say, of women sitting uh, or taking a back seat to everything. Well, in the time of Isaiah, because prosperity had gotten the better of them, the women started to flaunt some of their riches and their position, etc. And Isaiah is taking great exception with that because 
uh, they're overdoing it. You women so competent, rise up and hear my voice. Daughters so confident, give heed to my words. In a little more than a year, your confidence shall be shaken. For the vintage will fail. No fruit harvest will come in. Tremble, you who are so complacent. Shudder, you who are so confident. Now, <clears throat> says, strip yourselves bare with only a loincloth to cover. Well, that's going to a little extreme, sir. <clears throat> Etc., etc. Anyways, uh, this is again when Assyria is trying to take over and conquer the southern kingdom. Okay? The northern kingdom is already gone. Alright, now Assyria is trying the southern kingdom and they're trying to get Egypt in there and you have a kind of a three way, uh, process going here. Okay? There's one item at the bottom of this page I think is um, a little confusing. The very last sentence says, The land will revert to the state before human habitation transformed it. The word state here is often, uh, in our mind, thinking about a political state. What it really is saying is uh, will revert to the condition. Okay, to the unproductive uh, uh, condition before human habitation transformed it. Okay. Let's go over to an idyllic future. I think that in some ways Isaiah uh, is getting a little beyond what God really intends for him here. As quickly as the prophet moves from vision to reality, he shifts back to a vision of an idyllic future. He is convinced that the oracle of judgment he conveyed to the women of the upper classes is not God's final word to Judah. God will send the spirit to make the earth fruitful once again. Human society will be marked by justice, and justice will make it possible for all people to have what they need to lead happy lives. The imagery that the prophet uses here appears to suggest he believes that in the future, the people of Judah will be living in small villages. Again, the prophet allows his rhetoric to get the best of him. Okay. Because remember, we had talked about this before. Judah was a very prosperous nation prosperous in their times and in their culture, okay? It served the benefits and the needs of most of the eastern Mediterranean region. It says here, he expect Jerusalem to be restored. Well, to some degree it was, but never to the same degree that it was before. It will be purged of the injustices that have made it the object of divine judgment. The prophet, then, was not one who rejected city life as somehow incompatible to the ideas, ideals of traditional Israelite morality. What is essential to the prophet's vision 
of Judah's future is that justice will lead to peace. Mm. To some degree, yes, but uh, never to the level that he's presenting here. Okay. In chapter 33, we have this idea of the overthrow of Assyria. Okay. Thank God, because this is the last you'll hear about it. Uh, except next week, uh, the home reading assignment really is more uh, in the line of true history. Okay? And it's more in a narrative form, totally unlike what you've read up till now. Okay? Uh, chapters 36 through 39 are true history, and they are repeated in... Uh, the book, the second book of Kings, which I've asked you to read right up front, uh, in the first week. Uh, if you haven't, please read it again for next week because we'll be talking about the history that created most of these problems that we've read, uh, thus far. says the prophet, and this is chapter 33, but at the bottom of page 89, the prophet describes Jerusalem after God has removed the Assyrian threat to the city and established justice uh, for the city's poor and oppressed. The prophet uses conventional imagery to speak about God's rule from Zion. The worship of, well, let's talk about Zion, right, for a minute. Zion, in this case, is really another word for Jerusalem, all right? But it is more than that. It is not a word that is intended to imply just a place or a city. It's a whole spirit, uh, of belonging to something that is very special. Jerusalem has always been, in the Old Testament history, uh, the very special place that God has and uses as his dwelling place. That word dwelling place is used frequently in Old Testament um, scripture. Of course, that ceased uh, altogether in the year 70 A.D., but that's another subject which we'll get into uh, in part two of this series, okay? Zion here is really the uh, more spiritual idea and concept uh, coming out of Jerusalem. It says, the worship of Judah's God will take place without interruption, God's law will guide the city's government, but the prophet allows himself a little poetic license, a little, a little more than that. Anyways, allows himself a little poetic license as he speaks of God's dwelling in Zion, protected by broad rivers and streams. 
As you probably know, there are no broad rivers and streams in Jerusalem. First of all, it is built on a plateau, uh, making rivers and streams almost impossible. Uh, secondly, it is mostly uh, high desert, uh, which again does not uh, lend itself to rivers and streams. Uh, so the uh, prophet here is uh, getting a little dreamy, you might say. Finally, sickness and sin will only be a memory. The prophet uses this imagery, imagery excuse me, to move the people to see their future as the work of God rather than the result of political maneuvering. Leaving God would have to go quite a ways to bring it to that level. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, chapters 34 and 35 are almost exclusively prayers. And I'd like to go through them because they are beautiful prayers and talk a little bit about them afterwards. It says, come near, nations, and listen. Be attentive, you peoples. Let the earth and what fills it listen. The world and all it produces. The Lord is angry with all the nations, enraged against all their hosts. He has placed them under the ban, given them up to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. Their corpses shall send up a stench. The mountains shall run with their blood. Now, of course, remember, exaggeration is extremely important and quite useful in uh, ancient Jewish writings, not only Jewish writings, but writings of all the ancient nations of that time. Because this was a way of getting your attention, first of all, and kind of making you listen. Okay? We have a tendency to shudder away from language that is used here. And yet you shouldn't, because uh, in this day and age, that is, uh, the age of Isaiah, it was part of uh, common usage in written uh, scripture. All the hosts of heaven shall rock. The heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall wither away as the leaf wilts on the vine, as the fig withers on the tree. When my sword has struck its fill in the heavens, it shall come down upon Edom uh, for judgment and upon people under my ban. The Lord has a sword sated with blood, greasy with fat. A lot of this language you will find uh, repeated in the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible in the New Testament. Okay. If you jump over to verse 9, it says, Edom's stream. Now, Edom, 
is a, this whole uh, arid land southeast of Judah. Okay. And it has a sort of a bad history, you might say, all the way back to the time of Moses. Because when the Israelites were released from Egypt, or escaped from Egypt, however you want to put it, uh, and wandered in the desert for 40 years, it is they had to confront the Edomites uh, several times and fight them. So they were always a constant enemy. And it was used, or Edom has often been used in the same way as uh, the Babylonians uh, were used to indicate uh, ancient enemies. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. Never again shall anyone pass through it. But the desert owl and hoot owl shall possess it, and screech owl and ravens shall dwell in it. Uh, this is, as I said before, any nation who has persecuted or conquered Israel in any way has been totally destroyed by God. Okay. Egypt never became a powerhouse after the uh, Israelites left under the hand of Moses. Right. It was one of the greatest nations uh, in the world up till that time. But afterwards, no. Uh, Edom was destroyed. Uh, Babylonia was destroyed. Uh, you see, any country that harmed Israel in any way, shape, or form uh, was eventually destroyed, never to regain power. The Assyrians, of course, were included in that as well. Um, there's a point here that uh, I'd like to make just to kind of back up what I've said here on page 92 in the middle uh, of the page of the commentary here. It says, the focus on Edom, of course, reflects the pressure that Edom was exerting on Judah. The exaggeration, underline that, the exaggeration so clearly evident in the oracle is a matter of rhetorical convention. As I've said before, it is used to bring attention, really, and emphasize what the writer is saying. And also as a genuine ill will that gripped the people of Judah toward Edom. In other words, it continued to foster this idea of the Edomites being uh, a great enemy. Uh, that's a common belief, but there was no way to prove or disprove it. Yes. Yes. What Dee is saying, you know, remember, um, Jacob, the grandson of, no, not, not Jacob, uh, Isaac, the son of Abraham, had 
two sons of his own, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. Esau was born first, which was very important, the firstborn son. But later in life, he sold his birthright as being the firstborn son to his brother, Jacob. And he was exiled then by God and Isaac for doing so. And as Dee just pointed out, it is often common belief that the Edomites uh, were the offspring of Esau. As I said, there is no way to prove or disprove that. So, uh, you have the same kind of thing that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was also rejected by God because he came from a slave girl. And it was because uh, Abraham was a little anxious and took matters into his own hands, and therefore the offspring of Ishmael was banned. Ishmael then, and it is commonly believed, became the father of the Arab nations. All right? And the Arabs still accept that, uh, believe it wholeheartedly, and consider Abraham as their father, just as the Jewish people consider Abraham as their father because of Isaac. Chapter 35, again, is a promise, not a prediction uh, or a prophecy, but a promise of deliverance. And this is a prayer that is often used in uh, the Liturgy of the Hours. It says, the wilderness and the parched land will exalt the Arabah, which of course is the Arabian Peninsula will rejoice and bloom like the crocus it shall bloom abundantly and rejoice with joyful song the glory of Lebanon will be given to it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon they will see the glory of the Lord the splendor of our God Strengthen hands that are feeble. Make firm knees uh, that are weak. Say to the fearful of heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall see, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. And then the lame shall leap like a stag and the mute tongue shall sing for joy. Where have you heard that before? Remember that's part of what Jesus was saying when he was reading Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth. It is repeated again later on in part two. But nevertheless, uh, and they rejected 
Jesus because they felt he was getting a little too high and mighty and they didn't particularly like that. Okay, Because he says, and I'll repeat this here, and then the eyes of the blind shall see because Jesus did cure a lot of blind people. And the ears of the deaf shall be open and the lame shall leap like a stag and the mute tongue shall sing for joy. And then he says, Jesus says to the people, uh, this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your sight. Uh, they didn't particularly like that. Okay. For the waters will burst forth in the wilderness and the streams in the Arabah. The burning sands will become pools and the thirsty ground springs of water. The abode where jackals crouch will be a marsh for the reed and papyrus. A highway will be there called the holy way. No one unclean may pass over it, but it will be for his people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray on it. No lion shall be there, nor any beast of prey approach, nor be found. But there the redeemed shall walk, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and enter Zion singing, crowned with everlasting joy. They meet with joy and gladness. Sorrow and mourning flee away. Uh, Psalm 137 reflects this same thing, but it is attributed to the people returning from Babylon, that is, the small remnant returning from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. But that is, again, um, much, much later. Uh, as it says here, right in the very center of page 94, clearly this chapter was meant to serve as a bridge to the next section of the book. Okay. The next section actually means <coughs> chapters 40 through 55. If you go over to page 95 in the middle, says there are at least six allusions to the text in the New Testament. Chapters uh, 35 verses 3 of Isaiah is repeated or at least referred to in Hebrews 12. Uh, verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah is repeated or referred to in Matthews uh, chapter 11, Mark 7, and Luke 7, Acts 26, etc. So you see, what you're now beginning to see is that much of Isaiah, not so much first Isaiah, but deuteral Isaiah, which we will be getting into in January, is referred to or repeated in the New uh, New Testament. Let me stop here for a minute. Excuse me. And talk a little bit about Judaism 
at the time of Isaiah. Because we are so accustomed to being able to pick up a book, such as the Catechism, uh, or a prayer book, uh, or the Bible in general, and refer to chapter and verse uh, to support many of our beliefs. The people at Isaiah's time didn't have that. Judaism was not well defined and had no structure whatsoever. Written scripture was virtually new even though it had begun slowly uh, 150 years or so before. But it had not had time to really be perfected nor had there been time for it to be copied and distributed or disseminated to the majority of the people. And so these people had very little to go on except what they've learned through family traditions and being uh, orally taught by their parents and sometimes by uh, prophets because there was no priestly class at this time. They had the Levites who served in a sort of priestly way but not to the point of teaching. So you had a very primitive form of religion. Not what we would expect or think about today. In the 8th century B.C., 7th or 8th century B.C., Scripture had only started. Remember, as I said back around the first or second lesson, it was either David or Solomon who encouraged the writing down of Scripture. But it wasn't called Scripture. It wasn't intended to be Scripture. It was Jewish history. And therefore, it started with a group in southern part of Israel at that time, and they came to be called the Yahwist, after Yahweh, okay, because Yahweh was very familiar as a term uh, to them because it was a clo much closer to the time of Moses, even though five or six hundred years isn't really close time, but Nevertheless, that's what it was. So they became uh, the first writers of Jewish history, the Yahwehs. And they wrote pretty much in a historical sense the best that they could remember uh, from what was handed down by word of mouth for centuries. And later, when people read it, if they didn't quite agree with it, they would change it. Because it was history, it wasn't something sacred at that time, and so there was no problem to them. They had no qualms about changing what somebody else had written as history, because they either knew better, or they didn't like what they were reading, 
So they had a way of changing it. Okay. You had another group in the north called the Eloist. And they were doing kind of the same thing. They would write down their history. And the same result. If someone later didn't like what they wrote, they changed it. This was not intended to be anything sacred or holy. It was history. And then you had the prophets come along and they started writing down, such as Isaiah, their teachings which came directly from God. Now, theirs was probably the first theological writings that these people had. The rest were not theological. The rest was history from the Aoist or the Yellowist. All right? So, what is being written by Isaiah or Amos or Hosea or Micah about this time was probably the first true messages that these people were able to get uh, through the prophets, but from God. So we can't hold them to the same degree of responsibility that you would hold people today who were doing things wrong. They were truly not well educated. All right? In the same sense that we think of educated people today. It wasn't that they were dumb or ignorant or anything of that kind. It was just they didn't have the resources available to them. Then you had another group in the north called the Deuteronomist who began to write something that was a little different than what the other two groups were writing. The Deuteronomist, because of the apostasy and the degradation uh, of morals that we were reading throughout Isaiah, was very prevalent in the northern kingdom and was the cause of being overrun by the Assyrians. The Deuteronomist was a small group of people who decided that they had to do something about it to try to stem the tide of evil within their own communities. And so they began to collect all of the remembered writings and sayings of Moses and reproduce them in such a way that the reader would think that they came directly from the hand of Moses, or the mouth of Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapters uh, 7 through 26, I believe it is, uh, is the basic uh, beliefs of Moses. Now, these were either actual uh, remembered stories or repeated um, 
commands of Moses, stemming from the life of Moses and the, and the Ten Commandments and all of that afterwards. Um, and then to fill out a lot of the book of what we call Deuteronomy today, they took all of the things that developed in the way of religious activities between the time of Moses and and the time that they were beginning to write this book. And they put them together as if Moses had written all of this stuff. And so many people, even today, the Jewish people today feel that the book of Deuteronomy was all written by Moses because that was the way the writer intended it to be because it gave greater authority and substance to this book. Okay, Even though you can tell there are some mistakes made uh, such as one of the prophets uh, one of the sections of Deuteronomy that I remember uh, and come across quite often in the book of the Liturgy of the Hours is it talks about how Moses uh, commanded that uh, when the Israelites came into the promised land, they would each be given their own territory uh, directed by God. Well, that didn't happen until long after Moses was dead. So there was no way that Moses could have written that. Uh, and Moses didn't. It was written by the Deuteronomist in the 9th century B.C. So, but that book, once it was published, because it was laws, and it was published during a time when people weren't concerned about laws, but that is the majority of the people weren't concerned about laws, it was not accepted. And therefore, the people that wrote it were either uh, persecuted or they fled to the southern kingdom of Judah and took the book with them. And when it got to the southern kingdom, because it was all laws, thou shalt not do this, or thou shalt do this, etc., etc., it wasn't accepted there either, because the time was too soon. And so it was hidden in the temple for a number of years, until Hezekiah decided to uh, repair some of the temple, and it was found just before the Babylonian exile. And Hezekiah tried to uh, get the people to understand its purpose, uh, its value, and so forth. But it wasn't really accepted then. The people were not ready for it. They were enjoying their prosperity, and uh, they felt, let's not bother. However, once they went to Babylon, it was taken with them, and there it did some good eventually, but we'll talk about that once we get into part two of our session on Israel, of Isaiah. Okay. So you've got to understand. If this part that you're talking about was written prior to the Babylonian uh, exile. Uh, uh, All right. Uh, 
how much did people really pay attention to it? They didn't. That's they took it as, as something, afterwards they took it as something that people used, used and was uh, justified to now make into a formal Deuteronomy chapter. Yes. Uh, once, once they got into Babylon, or were forced into Babylon, let's put it that way, you know, they cried and whined because they couldn't understand why they were there. Why did God let them down? Well, it took the prophet Ezekiel to finally convince them that it was their own uh, disobedience that caused them to get there. And then Ezekiel brings out the book of Deuteronomy and they finally get the message. Okay. Well, that's true. That that's when it was. Yeah, uh, Ezekiel in Babylon. Yeah, right. Okay. So you see, Judaism changed so many times, and if you go to this little diagram here. You'll see exactly what I was talking about, or I hope you'll see it. Okay. In the second part, it says, from Moses to King Saul, there was only the Ten Commandments. There was nothing else written down. It didn't really start until this third section after David and Solomon began to encourage. So you see, in the first thousand years, roughly, of Judaism, there was no structure, there was no leadership, there was nothing written down. It didn't really begin in a formal way until after King David. So you've got to kind of give these people a little bit of leeway here because the average individual didn't have the education and didn't have the tools to really understand what Judaism was all about. That took solely uh, its form from a hand-me-down process. Karen? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, Karen brings up an interesting point here. The Deuteronomist came from the Northern Kingdom, as I said. They wrote this book and it was not accepted up there. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, the Deuteronomists were either carted off to Assyria, or they escaped to the southern kingdom of Judah and brought the book with them. Well, it wasn't accepted there either, because 
people didn't want to bother with all of these rules and regulations. So it was kept in the temple and sort of hidden there, you might say, um, until it was finally discovered shortly before uh, the Babylonians overran the southern kingdom. Once that happened, it then was taken to Babylon and studied there during the 50 years that the Jews were in Babylon. Yes, Chet? Because it did have value. It did have value to at least a small group of people. You know, in any large group of people, you're going to have good and bad. And that's true anywhere, anytime, any place. In this place, even though the majority of the people who were wealthy and so forth, or had any power, uh, didn't want that. There was a small group, the Deuteronomists, who maintained a relationship with God and were faithful to God and wanted people to do the right thing and therefore they collected all of these sayings of Moses into this book which we call Deuteronomy. The prophets, you know, remember God gave the prophets the message. The prophets put that message into words. It wasn't word for word. That's right. You know, God did not dictate and they wrote down. No. Uh, remember the words that are used here are man-made words. And that's through, true throughout all of the Bible. The Bible is inspired, but the, it's not the words that are inspired, it's the message. And the message, unfortunately, is sometimes garbled within a lot of words more than should be there. And that's the case here. The prophets used a lot of exaggeration to highlight the importance of what they're saying. And that's a common that was used. It, you know, it phased out over a period of time, but not during this time. It was a style. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Things, height, height, things, in italics, or capitals, or brackets. But, you know, they had, they did not have that opportunity or technique used in those days. So, we do the same thing in many ways, uh, but different, different ways. Yes. Okay. So, Yes. I have a question on page 91. Verse 4 says, All of the hosts of heaven shall rot, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. Now, what are the hosts of heaven? The sky, the, the stars, and the moon, and uh, all of that. Okay. So you're not death. talking about the angels? No. And no. No. Yes. No, the word host in those in that particular time was referring to all of the physical bodies 
that are in space. Okay. Any other questions? Now, what are we getting all the, out of all of this? I hope we're getting something. Okay. Most of what we're getting out of all of Isaiah and some of the historical parts that I've added is really in preparation for part two, uh, again, which begins in January. There you will find far more uh, relationship between prophecies uh, and promises uh, and words of Isaiah in the New Testament than you do in this part so far. There are some. And that brings me to a point that we're going to begin working on next week. We're going to have a little project, or you're going to have a little project. Okay? I'm in the process of developing a little <coughs> list of scripture from the Sunday Masses for the three-year cycle of our Sunday Masses. I hope all of you understand the Masses uh, are formulated in uh, a three-year cycle form, and they repeat themselves then every three years. Sometimes you will think, well, gee, we just heard that story here uh, a few weeks ago or whatever, uh, and that is because you do have the same stories in uh, repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, not John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are some stories in all three or at least two. Anyways, in this list, I will give you the quotation from Isaiah, the second reading quotation, and the gospel reading quotation. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to choose one of those and develop what you feel is the meaning of that particular uh, passage and how it relates to the gospel. The reason I feel that this is important and hopefully educational is that most people do not understand how the first reading of the Sunday Mass ties in with the second and the third reading as well as the uh, psalm. Okay. We'll leave the psalm out because that only complicates things a little. Um, and I don't want to make this to be a laborious project. It should be of interest. What I'm going to ask you to do is to take uh, a couple, you don't have to take all of them unless you want to, but take a couple of the quotations and do some research to see how the quotation from Isaiah, and that's all we're going to deal with, Isaiah 
ties into uh, or supports in some way or other the gospel reading. Does that sound that there might be some interest there? It's a homework assignment, yeah, okay. Um, Again, it is a way of helping you understand uh, the three-year cycle, and you'll see that uh, cycle A is almost all. Uh, The gospel readings are almost all out of uh, the gospel of Matthew, and cycle B, almost all of those are out of the gospel of uh, Mark, and cycle C are almost all out of which one? Now, where does John come in? Hmm? Not in, no, not exactly. I wouldn't say, Percy said that it's dispersed throughout all of them. Um, you might say a little bit. But really, uh, the Gospel of John is the most used during the times of Lent, Easter, um, and a little bit uh, in the Christmas season. Not much, but mostly during Lent and Easter, the Easter season. So we're talking about a period of about three months, okay, when you include Lent and Easter season. So that's when the Gospel of John is used most, okay. but I think what will help you to do is to understand the cycle, uh, the three-year cycle of the Mass, and how the first reading should tie into and support the Gospel reading. A lot of people pay no attention uh, to the first reading when they're at Mass, because most of the time they've never been taught to what it means. And there is a meaning, there is a way, uh, or a support system. And that is something that we should all learn. Okay, so that's going to be a project I hope to have uh, it ready for you uh, beginning next week. And it will be then due the following week. And what I would like then is to have some volunteers read what uh, they have developed, what they think is the um, the relationship between the first reading from Isaiah and the gospel reading. Okay? Alright. Any questions? We've got 15 minutes. I don't want to waste that time. Yes? You have often said and this is sort of just limited. He's going to get me in trouble now. You have often said that the concept of heaven did not develop until about 200 B.C. Have I got that right? Uh, maybe a little bit before that, but not much. Okay. Yes. But if you see in Isaiah, uh, I'm going back now to 13, he's talking about Sheol. Sheol. And how... Um, Lebanon and all the people are going to go down the ship. So the concept of hell was developed in Isaiah's time or before. Yes. But they didn't have the concept of heaven. Right. 
Now, wait, wait a minute. What Dick is saying here is, and he's quoting me, <laughs> blaming that on me. As I've said before, not only in this class, in many classes, the idea of mankind being returned to God in heaven did not develop until long after the Babylonian captivity. So we're talking about probably earliest three or four hundred years before Christ, but not even formulated till later. All right. This is the afterlife, you might say. And that's true. Now, let me sidestep for just a moment. The Jewish people always believed in heaven. Remember, Moses went up to the mountain and God came down to the top of the mountain and they would always believe that there was God in heaven. But the belief of mankind returning to God in heaven was never thought about until long after the Babylonian captivity. Because Once they came back from Babylon, they were still under the domination of the Greeks. Actually, the Persians for a while. And then the Greeks conquered the Persians. So they were after, they were under the domination of the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. So they were never really sovereign or independent nations after Babylon. And so the idea of a promised land sort of dissolved there because they felt it was no longer promised because it wasn't their land. It was always the conqueror's land. And so the idea of a new promised land began to take form and that then was hooked up with God in heaven. And so it didn't really develop into the way we think about heaven and mankind returning to God in heaven until the earliest 3rd or 4th century B.C. Okay. So the time of Isaiah, that was never thought about whatsoever. Okay, And then the time, the idea of who's going to lead us into this new promised land, heaven, is when the idea of a Messiah would come along and lead them. And that goes back, the idea of Messiah began with a quotation out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, no, chapter 18, verse 15, that talks about a prophet like Moses coming long afterwards to lead them. But that's it's sort of worded in a, in a vague sense. But then, after this idea of heaven and mankind returning to God in heaven began to develop, then people went back and took hold of this vague comment by the Deuteronomist and developed the idea of a Messiah. But that didn't come along until around the 2nd 
or early part of the third century BC. Well, that's that's part of why Isaiah is there trying to bring these people's attention. God was always going to be their leader and their protector. You see, that's the first covenant. Uh, but because the people did not fulfill their side of the covenant, you had all of these problems developing. And the whole, the motive as you pointed out, uh, was really God's favor and protection. All right? And of course, that developed into, in the second covenant of eternal life. But eternal life was never something thought about during the time of the first covenant. Yes, yes, yes. Unfortunately, they took that and it got really out of hand. That is just the opposite. If you were not healthy, you were not rich, then you were a great sinner. Yeah. So you had, you know, really extremes, both of which were wrong. All right. In many cases, yes. Okay. Not necessarily in the Jewish group. Uh, well, that's true. Yeah. Well, uh, Jesus himself says that. You're quoting Jesus himself, who says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, uh, and that's a little difficult to accept heaven and earth in the way we think of it will pass away. Not the actual reuniting with God. No, that will never pass away. Well, a new heaven and a new earth is a new way of looking at it, yes. That comes out of the book of Revelation, yes. Uh, it's not physically a new place compared to the previous place. It's a new concept or a new way of looking at it, all right? The whole book of Revelation is interesting because the word revelation, and it's, by the way, it's singular, not revelations, plural. Okay. And it's the word revelation is uh, meant to imply a new way of seeing the future or seeing God. It doesn't mean that it is revealing uh, something totally uh, unexpected. It's a way of looking at Christ differently than as a human being. And that is part of uh, 
many people's problems. They can, and particularly uh, uh, the Muslims, and to the, some degree even the Jewish people, they look at Christ as a uh, good man, a prophet, etc., but not as God. Okay. The whole book of Revelation is to help us to see Christ as God. That's also the same difference between John's Gospel and the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they all line up to present their version of the same stories, the same picture, etc. And this is Jesus Christ, the man who is also God. Whereas John's Gospel takes it in the reverse. This is God who has become man to save the world. To save all mankind. So, John's Gospel presents Jesus as God becoming man. And it's often called a Christology. Rather than a, a history such as the other Gospels are. So, but we're getting into a, a whole different uh, subject matter there. Okay. Any other questions? Oh, you're full of questions this morning. Well, I was missing for three weeks. I didn't have any. Oh, he didn't have any opportunity. Okay, get him out. You've been talking about promise, not prophecy. Mm-hmm. I've been pulling that over my mind. By promise, you mean it was not from God? No. What's the difference between promise and prophecy? Promise is if you do something, this will be the result. Ah. Prophecy is something that you are in in the way of, excuse me, in the way of your connotation here, is something that happens in the future. Could be good or it can be bad. Promise or prediction. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. May the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to explore some of these ideas today and some of the history behind not only Judaism, but our own uh, Catholic faith. Help us now to sort it all out in the way that you would want us to so that we understand what it is that you truly want us to understand and to believe. So give us the strength and the courage uh, to change our minds and hearts where it is necessary and to hold fast to those things that you have given us in the past. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.